Welcome now to Culture at Work on the Business Radio Network, presented by Crest Insurance with host Matt Nelson. So welcome everybody to today's episode of Culture at Work in Tucson, proudly presented by Crest Insurance Group, where we learn from and celebrate the local leaders, businesses, and nonprofit organizations who have stood the test of Tucson time. I'm your host, Matt Nelson of Crest Insurance, and I'm joined here virtually uh, on Tucson Business Radio X today by Dr. Christian Moore. Uh, Dr. Moore is a family physician and the chief executive officer of Escalera Health, and he's joining us this month to talk about and really a number of topics, but they're going to center on employees' mental health at work in a post-COVID environment and how that relates to workplace culture for employers. So for those who don't know, Dr. Dr. Moore is a groundbreaking entrepreneur and one of Tucson's most respected physicians. He was pivotal in the development of local integrated care delivery models deployed by community partners and Symphony of Healthcare uh, through national agencies like Centene and Sympatico here in Arizona. And it was in this capacity as Chief Medical Officer for Community Partners that uh, he was recognized in 2018 as the National Council for Behavioral Health Doctor of the Year. And this was around your work on the national opioid crisis, if I'm not mistaken, that also led to a TED Talk and your keynoting the white coat ceremony for your alma mater the University of Arizona's Medical School. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And so since then, you've continued your work in our community at Escalera Health. Uh, it's a physician-led integrated healthcare clinic founded in Tucson as part of the Sunbelt Medical Group. And uh, you and your wife, actually, I think you met at the U of A's College of Medicine. Is that correct? That is absolutely uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> and she's, so she's a family practitioner as well? Uh, or no. She's a pediatrician, uh, so uh, she's the much smarter doctor in the family for sure. <laughs> so she works at Tanker Verde Pediatrics just up the street. Okay, all right. Yeah. Um, well, so uh, you know, I know you guys are both strong advocates for the Tucson community, and and among your your busy schedule as a CEO, um, physician, provider, uh, public speaker, among other hobbies, you sing, play guitar, and keyboard in the local rock band Squirrel, which uh, I'll, I'll definitely have some questions for you about as well. So. Excellent. Uh, really, thank you so much, Dr. Moore, for joining us. It's, it's truly a pleasure to have you on the show, and I really look forward to this discussion. I, I just don't think it could be any more timely as we try and get to some sense of, you know, a path forward to, to have some guidance for employers and, and how they can interact with their employees in the best way possible. So thank you. Really, really appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Our pleasure. Um, well, so as we all know, uh, the past few months have been especially hard on the nation's workforce and employers amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you know, we started with some truly horrific images in cities where healthcare systems were struggling to meet and, and even in some cases losing the fight for capacity. Um, and now we're in this environment where we've got concepts that really up until six months ago were completely alien for us, at least in the United States. Um, home confinement orders, public mask requirements, social distancing. And I think everybody has really been struggling to find some stable ground to stand on. Um, and from a workplace culture standpoint, our society kind of fractured um, by COVID into, into two divisions, right? We had essential workers who had to continue working amidst a evolving situation. Um, and then we had other workers who were compelled to stay at home by state actions that closed their businesses. And in the, in the healthcare space, I mean, we even saw that divide happen within a single operation where you had half of the staff that was administrative 
being told to go home from a safety perspective. And then you have another half of the staff that has to go into the environment that they're being told that everybody knows is, is fairly dangerous. And I just, I, I, I really would love to start um, as with our discussion is we see these workforces starting to reconnect. Um, it seems like there are a lot of unknowns about how people, how employees are going to be reacting to these very different perspectives now um, on workplace safety and culture now that everybody's kind of being put back into the same fishbowl after six months apart. And I really suspect we're not going to know the full implications of that for some time. But boy, as you know, as, as somebody who, um, one of the rare people that has both a medical perspective on this and, 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 a, and a medical education on this, but also you run a business and you've got employees that are in both of those camps. Maybe we can start off with how your organization was affected by this and, and kind of how you're charting your path forward for your employees to get them back at work and not just present, but, but productive. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing question. And there's a lot of, a lot wrapped up in there. Um, I can tell you, you know, just a brief introduction to Escalera. We, we are an integrated healthcare uh, company. So we provide primary care services and behavioral health services. So on our staff, we have um, primary care doctors, uh, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants. And then we also have psychiatrists and psychi psychiatric nurse practitioners. And then we have therapists as well who see people for counseling, as well as all of our su support staff. So when uh, this pandemic broke, um, we really had to have some serious discussions as a company about how we were going to go forward. Um, the primary care team uh, definitely felt like this was in our wheelhouse and that we wanted to be out there um, testing, uh, getting our, our, our community the answers that it needed to kind of move forward and stay as safe as possible. Um, and our mental health providers um, wanted to continue doing the mental health work that they were doing, but weren't sure the best way to do that. So what we decided uh, as a team is the mental health providers, our, our therapists and our psychiatrists, uh, went mostly virtual. So almost all of them were doing telemedicine visits, uh, which works great for mental health for a lot of people. Um, so the, 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 the physician or the therapist could be working from their home. Uh, the patient could log in from their home as well. Um, and uh, that, that system worked great and it kept our people pretty busy. So. Uh, because we were pretty sure we were going to take a hit uh, financially when all this happened. We were sure our visits were going to go down. So that was one way that we found to kind of stay afloat during this time. We're a small company. We're not like the banners and the TMCs of the world where we have these big war chests that we sit on. You know, we make our living as we go as clinicians. And so we were able to kind of pivot um, our mental health team and uh, have them uh, being productive from home, uh, which was great. Um, but there are challenges, of course, and not everyone has the same technology. Not all of our patients have smartphones or access to computer or internet, so we did have to do some workarounds uh, for those patients. Uh, but for the most part, uh, we were we were pretty successful with that. Um, we um, are, I don't think our we were at full capacity, but we were probably seeing seventy to eighty percent of what we were seeing before on the mental health side which was enough to keep us afloat, which is great. Uh, on the primary care side, that's a little different because uh, I can't uh, listen to someone's lungs or listen to someone's heart over the phone. Uh, I've got to see them in person if they're having symptoms uh, or, or if there's a painful ear or there's some other problem. So we needed to have some clinic hours for sure. Uh, so we stayed open for that. And then we also um, 
I had telemedicine hours available for primary care as well. A lot of things we can do over telemedicine if you're if you're managing someone's diabetes, or if you're managing hypertension and they've got a way to to, manage, to check their blood pressure at home, then we can do a lot of that over the phone. Um, and some of our patients really appreciate that. And there's a lot of patients that you really don't want in a in a doctor's office or a hospital setting because they have so many other medical problems. We were able to get both of those things up and running. Uh, and uh, to be on the safe side, like a lot of companies, we were really concerned about what the financial impact on our company was going to be. And so we all took pay cuts. Um, uh, this is in March. I, I want to say the maybe the second or third week in March as we kind of saw what was happening in the world and where this was headed. So we, we, we uh, across the board, everybody took a pay cut. Um, and some people were uh, not super happy about that. And most of us were just kind of t- uh, tightening our belts, going to make it work fortuitously around that time we have a, a, a lab that we work with that does our in-office blood draws uh, for all of our patients and they were very um, interested in starting uh, aggressive COVID-19 testing for the community so I would say by the second week of March um, we had a, a drive-up tent up and running at our facility so we were able to start doing the nasal swab testing uh, for patients to start screening for COVID-19 um, and over the last eight to nine weeks, we've screened probably 2,500 patients uh, through that clinic already. And then we also have the blood tests available in our clinic for antibodies. And then a more recent line of business that we've been able to, to develop is our COVID-19 response unit where we'll go to uh, employers uh, who need to have their people tested. And so we've gone to restaurants and mortgage companies and uh, several medical clinics um, to go and bring our crew with us. And then we kind of set up in a big conference room where we can socially distance appropriately and we get as many people tested as possible. So just this week, I've uh, probably screened 400 people myself this week uh, at d- going to several offices and it's only uh, Thursday. <laughs> so whereas we're pretty tired to say the least, but I will tell you that uh, because of how, um, successful we've been with our COVID uh, screening business that we were all able to go back up to our regular salaries across the board uh, within. So we really missed one key period where we had lower, lower reimbursement uh, for our staff. And then now everyone's back up uh, and above that. So that uh, being able to kind of step into that gap and provide services to the community ended up being a really good line of business for our company as well. That's fantastic. Well, and and so as you look at, you know, we're starting to get to the point where, you know, and, and there's, of course, in an evolving situation like this, everything is, it's, it's, a, it's a battle of inches, right? You know, you, you make some gains and then some new information comes out and you realize, okay, maybe we weren't quite as far along as we thought we were. And then you go back and you retool and you make some more gains. And, and so, but as more data becomes available and as an employer, you're able to start to make more informed decisions around risk management and, and, what a business looks like, what what a workforce can look like, how your employees can work together. I guess from the perspective of somebody who's out there getting the data, how have you seen that affect the elements of your workforce that are now kind of coming back and, and, and combining and then going out into a community where previously we were kind of flying blind and, and there was really, there was a range of options from this, you know, we're never going to be able to go back to normal to maybe we'll be able to, to get some approximation of it to, you've got some arguments saying, Hey, look, you know, like if, if things trend extremely positively, it'll be just like, you know, just like the flu. And, and I, yeah. I don't want to open that whole can of worms, but you know, from a, from a workforce management standpoint, from a culture management standpoint, how do you, 
how do you adjust your business and, and adjust employees' expectations around data that's evolving this quickly? Because I don't know that there have been many workplace culture situations that have had this much variation in this short of a time. Right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's a, it's a, a challenge as we are learning more about this virus every, literally every day, new things are coming out. And so, you know, we're doing all this testing and we're not really sure, um, you know, number one, how good those results are. I think the test results are pretty good, but we don't necessarily know what the implications of those results are. We know that if someone tests positive, uh, for active disease, and that's a pretty good test and then they probably do have an active disease. Um, what we, what we aren't sure on is when we do the antibody testing and the antibodies come back positive, meaning that someone has had this illness, has gotten over it, and then their body has made an immune response. Uh, we're sincerely hoping that that really makes them immune to it. Like it does when you get the flu or you get, you know, uh, your shots when you're a child. Um, but we don't have that answer yet. We don't know if someone is, is antibody positive, are they really immune or if they are immune, how long does that immunity last? And so, so this all plays into workplace reintegration. How do we get people back to work? How do we get people feel feeling comfortable about going back to work? I just did a, uh, a Zoom conference with the um, leaders of FC Tucson and all their youth um, uh, soccer uh, academies because uh, these, you know, they're starting back up again. And these kids and parents and coaches and support staff are all worried about how that's going to look. And the way that um, – that kids and teenagers process information and process the world uh, is in some way different than adults do, but it's also very similar. You know, some kids are scared. Some kids are irritated that they had to not do the things that they wanted to do. Uh, and some are really, really frightened about uh, potentially catching this illness and bringing it home, either getting sick themselves or bringing it home to someone that's ill. And th and in talking to our staff, those are all the same concerns that we have. You know, every person is has a slightly different social situation. Uh, some of us have, uh, I have teenagers at home um, and their lives have been significantly disrupted over the last year. Um, you know, my son's home from college, he's doing it online and my daughter will be a senior next year. So she's worried about what her, her senior year in high school is gonna be. And then um, you have other staff members uh, who have an elderly parent at home or someone who has another, or, or perhaps maybe a spouse who's got a significant medical issue and we are all very worried about bringing this stuff home. Certainly in the medical community, you know, all the doctors that I talk to and the nurses and the nurse practitioners and PAs, we're, we're super worried about, you know, we feel pretty good, but are we bringing something home to our families? Are we bringing something out into the community when we, we do see people? So we're taking every precaution to do that. I think that from a, from a company standpoint, our, our culture uh, has been that we really want to empower people to make decisions that are, that are the best for them and their family. If someone is able to work virtually, uh, meaning that they can do their, their work from home, um, then we want to empower them to do that, to keep them as safe uh, as possible physically, but also mentally. You know, if um, as a, a lot of our therapists are not used to dealing with um, medical health problems. And so it's, 
the idea, the chance, the poss- just the possibility that they could get sick from someone that they're seeing and trying to help and then bring that home to their children is very scary for them. And so we've had several staff meetings talking about this and trying to find out where people, uh, people's comfort levels were coming back to the office. Uh, and over the last couple of weeks, we're kind of slowly starting to reintegrate most of those people uh, if they're feeling comfortable. There's a couple of the therapists that are just going to stay virtual for now um, because that's where they feel the best. Um, and, and, you know, from a company standpoint, that's it's a great and it's also a challenge. There's some infrastructure things you need to have for, as far as um, computers and, uh, and good internet connection and all that kind of stuff. And then there's also the financial aspect of that. Like if production productivity goes down for someone, um, and how, how do you deal with that? Yeah, because because in reality it does. There's some headaches in dealing with the electronic things, um, and sometimes patients don't show up or calls get dropped and that kind of stuff. And how do you bill for that? And how do you compensate someone appropriately for their work they're doing? But also uh, on the other side, they may not bringing in as, be bringing in as much to the company. So that's a challenge uh, that we're dealing with on a daily basis. But we're slowly working through that. I think a little bit about so I, I took the took the time to to listen to the TED talk and. Um, so your involvement in the opioid crisis, I think, was a, was a great, I, I'm, I'm going to say the word mea culpa, but I don't think it really applies because it was kind of one of those situations where, I mean, we, we thought we understood a situation. We thought we knew what the right thing was to do in our medical community, in the, in the healthcare system. And then as data evolved, we started to realize that we, that there were problems, right? That there were second and third order effects that we just hadn't fully understood. And so all of a sudden, you know, you're faced and, and in a position of authority, this is especially difficult, right? Because yeah. now it's, you know, it's very difficult to have to turn around and say, you know what, we got this a little bit wrong. We need to change course. And I think it really is a testament to your character that you were somebody who openly stood up and said, you know what, no, we need to change course on this prescription model for opioids and um, we have to, we have to fix this because the, 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 the consequences are going to be dire if we continue on this path because of all these other momentum motivations that have kind of gotten us here. And so it just seems like your experience is particularly relevant as we look at this situation right now with this evolving COVID crisis where we have conflicting interpretations of evidence. We have models where, hey, you know what? We, we got something wrong there, and now we've got to try and walk that back and retain the trust of not only our community, but you know, as an employer, you've got to maintain the trust of your employees um, and maintain that connection. Because I think one of the things that really stood out to me when you were talking about how you manage somebody that's struggling with an opioid addiction, the importance of connection, right? The importance of connection and integration um, both in their healthcare, because it's not something that's happening in isolation, but also social connection. And that seems to tie very closely to what's alien to us right now, which is we've had these bonds of connection in the workplace and in our communities, sometimes even in families, if you have an elderly family member where it's not seen as safe right now to be around them. How, when you look at that experience and you try and apply that now to the practices you're doing in the work in the workforce, um, where you have people that have some physical restriction where they're, they're going to be physically distant, either through technology or just through, you know, having to wear a mask all day or, or having to stay six feet apart while they're in the clinic. 
How have you guys as an organization tried to keep people connected? I heard you mention kind of regular staff check-ins. If I run a manufacturing company, what things do you think I could take from that and try and incorporate? Yeah, so absolutely. Yes, I think connection is a huge part of that. And there's lots of different ways to do that. And that, you know, that's, that's, from the bottom all the way to the top, you know, so my company is relatively small. We probably have 30 employees. Uh, so it's very easy to stay in contact and we see each other almost every day. Those of us that are in the office, it has been a challenge, especially for our therapists who tend to be more sensitive anyway, and, and, uh, definitely, uh, more empathetic, uh, to people. And they really, therapy is such a challenge because um, you really take in a lot of what you're talking to your, your patient, your client about. And if you don't have a way to um, express those thoughts and uh, talk with your peers and have a, feel like you have a good support system around you, then you really, we all do really kind of internalize that. And then, it, then you're carrying even more than you normally carry on the inside. So it is a huge challenge so what we've done is we, like I said, we try to maintain regular staff meetings. We try to do fun things like we all got, you know, I got t-shirts for everybody that said COVID-19 response team kind of as a team building experience. So a lot of people know that they're not alone. I think the, uh, the experience, you know, with the opioid epidemic, it, I do think it's a, it's not improper to say that it's a mea culpa because I do think that we did not have our eyes on the ball and that we, well, we were misled in some ways, um, uh, and, I, and I, we also kind of let let us get carried along by uh, the pharmaceutical industry, and we kind of let ourselves get carried along by, to, to quite honestly, the money. You know, there it's it's a good business model to have patients coming back and seeing you every week or every month. Um, it's not good for the patient necessarily, um, and it's really not good for our system of care. Um, and the data that we use back when I was in training, you know, uh, that in the nineties, I graduated, graduated med school in 99. Then I did my residency at, at Oregon health and science university in Portland. And so we were trained that pain is one of your vital signs, you know, that pain, you know, you have your blood pressure, your pulse, your oxygen level and your pain, uh, um, level. And the problem with doing that is that, um, we, you and I could have the same painful stimuli and I could be in pain that I rate 10 out of 10 and you could be in pain that you rate one out of 10. And so how, how do you deal with that as a patient? Um, because, uh, my feeling of being 10 out of 10 is really a valid feeling for how I feel. And your feeling of feeling one out of 10 is a valid feeling for how you feel, but how do we treat that? Does that mean I need to be on, you know, extended release morphine for my pain that, that you don't need to take anything for, and it's a huge challenge in, in trying to deal with that. And I think, you know, as, uh, you know, pain is the fifth vital sign and patient satisfaction scores and all these things became a part of how we were rated by insurance companies and payers and stuff. Then we really started building our practices um, towards that. We, we tailored our electronic health records to, to more meet the demands of uh, the payment model than we did to be really good health records to tell the story of what was happening with a patient in medical terms, as opposed to checking boxes that we need to check about. Did you address smoking this visit or did you talk to someone about their BMI or their body weight? And so um, I think that um, trying to deal with all that of those 
uh, external pressures is really challenging as a physician and as a business owner too. I'm sure you deal with it too. There's so much regulation in, in your work. There's so much regulation in my work um, that sometimes it, I feel like it gets in the way of our mission. It gets in the way of what we do, but it's also the price of doing business. Uh, and so from a cultural standpoint at our work, you know, we really try to make sure that we are, you know, in part, it's part of our mission statement that we, and, we use intentional kindness. We try to bring kindness to every interaction we have. And that's, that's with staff members. That's with peers. That's with patients. That's with payers. That's with potential uh, business out in the community. We try to be kind first. And I think that, that generally resonates with people. And sometimes it's not always the best business move, but it, I think usually kindness does pay off in the long term. And then we try to make sure that we're financially sustainable. You know, that's otherwise, if you know, if you don't have the bottom line, then you don't have your vision, you don't have your company. And so we really try to work with that. And Sunbelt has really been very helpful in helping us kind of manage our business, manage our billing so that we can uh, um, complete our mission. And then the last thing we, we really want to have innovation and we call it rockstar innovation. You know, it comes from my musical background, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit, but we really want to innovate. You know, we want to, there, there's a lot of doctor's offices, uh, patients can go see a doctor or nurse practitioner all over the place, but what makes our company unique? Uh, and what do we bring to that? And it's our culture of how we take care of our our staff first and foremost to me the staff is the most important and if you take care of your staff and you validate their concerns then they are going to take care of your patients and your clients and they're going to uh, validate their concerns that makes sense and you know it's i'm actually glad you couched it that way because i think oftentimes we so one of the things that i was trained on you know in business school is is like you know everything everything's customer centric yeah. and then you kind of build the staff to meet the customer and I think as data has evolved, one of the things that we've come to realize is that, well, all right, you can like, like your relationships with your customers can, can evolve much more quickly than your relationships with your staff. It's a lot harder to replace good staff than it is to say, you know what, maybe this is not the right customer for our organization and, and, right. and place your priority on the staffing side, making sure that everybody is in, in line with the mission and the culture and then going out and finding culture, uh, finding customers that, that respond to that as opposed mm -hmm. to trying to constantly change your business model. And I mean, there's a balance like anything, right? I mean, I think that dichotomy is something that um, gets lost a lot of times in conversation where, you know, you, sometimes new data comes out and that dichotomy has to shift. And, it, you know, if there's one thing that's constant in life, it is that that dichotomy evolves. <laughs> yeah, for um, sure. So... I'll tell you what, since you brought up music, let's, let's take a quick, we, we, we started off with some fairly heavy topics. So, so let's take a quick breather here. Um, so, so you grew up in Michigan, go to Oral Roberts, which is in Oklahoma for your undergrad. What brought you to Oral Roberts first? And then what brought you to Tucson to the, to the U of A college of medicine um, for med school? Was that intentional? Was it something that, you know, it's like Michigan was cold and snowy and Arizona looked like sunny and palm trees. What, because that seems to be, you know, I mean, that's where you met your wife. And, and then, you know, we'll talk about music from that. Yeah. So how did that sure. story go? So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great story. I, so when I was growing up in Michigan, I was I was pretty conservative. I was raised in a pretty conservative family. And I uh, went to a religious high school. And the girl I was dating at the time uh, went to Oral Roberts, which is in Tulsa. So I thought, well, I might as well tag along. And like like many, many stories uh along those lines go it, it did not end great from a relationship standpoint but it was it was a good place to go to you know i was there at a really interesting time to be there which was during the um 
the crisis. I don't know if you remember this, but where Oral Roberts, so I, and I didn't really know who Oral Roberts was. I really wasn't into televangelism or any of that kind of stuff. I just went basically for this girl. Um, but I was there when um, he said that, you know, if he didn't get like a million dollars and he was going to die, like God was going to call him back. So it was a really interesting time to be there. And I can tell you that um, I certainly went into that school with a, an idea of what my life would be and what my, my views on the world were, what my religious views were. Um, and I think unlike a lot of people there, I think I really went the opposite way once I was there. So I, I, um, uh, I had a really hard time, uh, reconciling, um, my worldview with, with, with that worldview. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that. Where there's a lot of people that I really love that, that have that specific worldview. It just didn't necessarily resonate with what I feel on the inside. Um, and that, that came, that really showed itself in a lot of ways. You know, I, uh, tended to be more creative. I went into my major is in English literature, so I I, I started I, I studied a lot of literature. I studied I did a lot of reading and a lot of writing, um, and I admit freely that a lot of that was because I was terrible at math and I wanted to avoid math in any possible way that I could, uh, but also because I I seem to have an aptitude for it. And so uh, if you've been around English departments at all, they tend to be creative folk and they tend to be kind of on the fringe of, of what I would say most faculty were. And I had some amazing faculty members, uh, one who was a D.H. Lawrence scholar, which you wouldn't necessarily expect to find at Oral Roberts University, but a lot of people like that. They really exposed me to a different part of the world. And then I worked the whole time I was in college. I worked uh, full-time at a restaurant. I started as a busser, and then I was a, a, a waiter. And I was exposed to this, to to gay culture in a way that I had not been exposed before. And my preconceived ideas of how people who happen to be gay were, were, were going to be were entirely shattered as I realized that everybody is exactly the same and everybody has the same fights with their boyfriend or girlfriend and everyone has the same fights with their boss or has the same things that they love and, um, and, and hate. So that experience was really eye-opening for me. And then I, uh, the biggest one for me was I, I went on a mission trip uh, to Africa. I was in Ghana for a while. And I really had a difficult time reconciling uh, that these people were going to not not be taken care of after they passed away if they didn't believe a certain way. So this is just for me. Again, I'm not judging anybody's beliefs at all. This is just for my system. And so when I came back, um, I really had to, to think about what I wanted to do with my life. And so I graduated with a degree in English Lit. And so the answer was not much at that particular point. I, there wasn't a lot I could do with that. So I moved back to Michigan for a year. And I uh, I worked construction at that time. But then I, uh, I, I um, applied to law school and got into law school in Michigan. But I really did not want to do it. I kind of was just just doing that as the next thing I was going to do in my life. Um, and I uh, you know, woke up one morning and realized I really didn't want to be a lawyer. And so I, uh, my dad lived in Tucson, and he had been a doctor in Tucson for a long time. So I decided uh, really on the spur of the moment that I was going to move out to Tucson and kind of not go to law school because I could see what I was, what was going to happen to me if I was in law school and I, I wasn't going to be happy in 10 or 15 years. So I really just wanted to make a break and kind of reassess. So I drove cross country and ended up in Tucson and this is in the uh, mid, mid nineties. And then, um, uh, I, I worked at the Olive Garden at uh, Tucson mall for a long time and you know, was able to buy a house and a car and everything. I, that place was very, very good to me. And then uh, I was in a movie theater at the uh, century 
uh, I think it's called the Century Park. It used to be by I-10 and Grant. It was a big movie theater there, and I was watching this this movie called The Doctor with uh, William Hurt, and I was sitting in that dark theater by myself, and I was like, I really want to be a doctor. Like, I, and I'd always wanted to be a doctor, really. Uh, my dad and my stepdad were both physicians, uh, but I, I don't know what it was like for you with your dad, but I really did not feel like I could ever measure up to them from an intellect standpoint or from a work ethic standpoint. So I really took being a doctor off my plate um, as something that I could could possibly do but sitting in that theater I really realized that that was my calling and so then starting that next day I, I re-enrolled at the U of A and got all my prerequisites done and then ended up getting into med school in 95 uh, met my wife uh, within the well the woman who was going to become my wife met her within the first month and we became study buddies and yada yada lot of yada you know uh, 22 years later we're we've been married for 22 years now we've been together for 25 26 and so it's, it's been great for me and living in Tucson is awesome. And we, my wife's from Tucson. We love Tucson. We raised our family here and it's, it's the best possible place for us. And so that's kind of how I ended up in Tucson. We left a little while for residency and moved up to Oregon for three years and then moved back to Michigan where my stepdad, um, had Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, and he, uh, we stayed until he passed away. Then we always knew we wanted to get back here to the warm weather and the, the beautiful people and culture here. So that's how we ended up back here. That is uh, that is quite the path to uh, yeah. career in medicine. That's uh, yeah. my goodness. We could probably talk for an entire hour long podcast about that because it's, sure, uh, yeah. You know, it's it's amazing. So my uh, I'm I'm the the lone uh, member of my family that is not in the medical field. My my brother oh. is a PA up in Phoenix. My sister is a nurse um, up in up in Washington, and uh, so. As the as the evil insurance guy over <laughs> the table at Thanksgiving, uh, we always have some interesting conversations about about the world. But what's amazing to me is is um, you don't well, quite frankly, you don't see many people who are English lit majors that decide in a movie theater, hey, you know what, medicine is something I want to take a crack at. And quite right. frankly, they can, that they have the the ability, the discipline, and the, and the intellect to to make that more than just a passing thought over popcorn where it's like, oh, I'd yeah. be nice to be a doctor. So, well, listen, I, I will tell you that no one is more surprised at that than me, <laughs> that it worked out all right. So I would tell you that there are many teachers and my parents that that would have never thought that this was going to be a possibility. So uh, it's, I'm it's very, very thankful. Yeah. yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I'll tell you what. So let's um, let's take a quick um, a quick break here to, to kind of catch anybody up who might be joining us uh, midway through. So for those of you that are, that are just joining us, this is Culture at Work in Tucson, proudly presented by Crest Insurance. Uh, it's the largest locally owned and operated insurance brokerage in Southern Arizona and one of the top 100 insurance agencies in the United States. Crest is your hometown broker to assist with your commercial insurance, workers' compensation, and employee health benefit insurance plans. Uh, I'm your host, Matt Nelson, and now back to our conversation with Dr. Chris Moore. So as we, um, so, so you're in Tucson, and, uh, and I guess we'll throw one more, one more kind of softball question up here. Um, how do a physician and chief medical officer, a pharmacist, a former Army first sergeant, a chief financial officer, a venture capitalist, and two other executives decide to link up and start a rock band? So what, what got you guys started? Um, well, I guess you and music first, but, but then how did that motley crew um, of business executives get together to start playing music? 
Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And yes, obviously, we're, we are one of the great rock bands in the history of music. So it's, uh, it's a very important question that needs to be answered, Matt, for sure. Uh, so, so I started in music uh, when I was a kid. I certainly did piano lessons like everybody else did. I was a terrible student. And you'll, um, as we discussed my history in college and high school and everything, you'll find I was a pretty terrible student at everything that I did until I really decided what I wanted to do. Um, so I, I was, I was a, not a great uh, piano student. I played French horn in high school too. And then um, when I got to college, I, uh, I bought a buddy's guitar and I, I kind of taught myself to play guitar. I'm not a great guitarist, but I can play and I can survive a little bit. Um, I'm much better at, at keyboard, but I play mostly by ear. And so I played on and off for, for a long time, you know, for I'm, I'm 52. So for the last 45 years or so I've played. Uh, and then um, it's, it's a funny question because I, I worked at Crondelet out by St. Joe's hospital for many years when I first moved back to Tucson yeah, and um, I had read, and this is going to be a long, it's kind of a circuitous story about my career and then how I got into the band. So, but that's, they're kind of all connected. So I had read this article in the Star, the Daily Star, about Fletcher McCusker, who is a oh, you know a, a lot of your uh, listeners will probably know. He's a big businessman downtown. He's been very successful in everything that he's done, and he runs a venture capital company now down there. And he was starting a, a home health and hospice company that was going to be integrated. So they're going to have primary care, some behavioral health. They had an oxygen company too at the time, uh, and so kind of a unique situation and I had got on to their website and they, they had a, like a chief nursing officer and a, a CFO and a, uh, they had, they had a lot of leadership positions, but they didn't have a physician at all. So I was on the board of the children's museum at the time. And I very illegally got his email address from my executive director because Fletcher and uh, his wife, Liz are big donate, you know, they donate to everything. And so I got his email address and I emailed them out of the blue. Say, listen, I'm a doctor in Tucson. Uh, I, I, I've been the team doctor for the Tucson Padres for the last couple of years. I've done all this other stuff in Tucson. I love Tucson. You love Tucson. Maybe we should get together and kind of talk about your company and stuff. And I guarantee that Fletcher gets that kind of email probably 30 times a week from people who want to work with him somehow. Um, but for whatever reason, he said, yeah, why don't you come on down and, and we'll chat. And so I came down to his office and it was, uh, Matt, you said you've been there, but it was basically the, it used to be the old produce warehouse that was on tool and stone, right? When you come up that underpass there and I walked into this building and it's, you know, 40 foot high ceilings and exposed brick everywhere. And they had a basketball um, court set up and then they had this rock band set up at the front with a full drum kit and a bunch of guitars and a piano and stuff. And I, in my brain, I was thinking, I, I will work here for free. I will volunteer to leave this hospice just so I can come and hang out in this office. I did not tell Fletcher that, thank God, at, at the time. <laughs> but uh, so he and I met, and we kind of chatted, you know, for uh, probably an hour and a half, maybe two hours in his office. Um, and, you know, Fletcher is really interesting. And I think a lot of really successful business guys are like this, or businessmen and women are like this and he's very intuitive and he had a gut feeling about me that I don't even know why he had it. But, you know, so I left that interview, not sure what was going to happen, but he called me an hour later on the phone and said, listen, I'd like to make you my chief medical officer. And, I, and that was totally out of the blue. He didn't really, he really didn't know me. He didn't call any of my references. He didn't know anything other than the, the conversation that we had had. Um, and I really uh, owe a lot to Fletcher and I appreciate him, you know, seeing something in me that I hoped was there and that I really wanted to nurture in myself. And so we started a company at that point in time uh, running home health and hospice out of downtown. And then little, 
what I didn't know is that Fletcher, before he started this company, he, he'd been a part of Providence, which is a big behavioral health services company for kids. And when he left that company, he had a no compete clause to not go into that line of business for a certain amount of time. And after I'd been with this, him for about six months, that no compete clause was up and, you know, uh, business people can hold grudges or they can have a fire burning in their heart. And so as soon as that, I literally, the day that that was up, uh, we started our integrated health company at that time to kind of get into that line of business because you really felt like, um, integrated care is what we should all have, you know, primary care, behavioral health together. It makes so much sense. If, if you if your mental health is not great, your physical health is not going to work. And if your physical health isn't great, your mental health is, is going to suffer as well. So I think we were really ahead of our time and we started the company called assurance and I'm going to fast forward past a bunch of stuff. But in, in three years, we grew from one clinic and zero patients to we had 21 sites and about 10,000 patients and about 500 employees throughout Arizona. So we grew really, really fast. And then there are some amazing things about growing that fast and some really terrible things from growing that fast, especially from a business culture standpoint. I can tell you that uh, when I'm running meetings every week and I, I know everybody that I work with and uh, we all work very close together, it's very easy to maintain our culture of communication and, and validation and support and kindness. When we got you know 10,000 patients and, and employees that I've never met and scattered all over the, the state, it's a lot harder to maintain that. And so we had some growing pains with that. But back to the more important thing, which is the band. Uh, so, so, so Fletcher and, and his, his friends, you know, had started this band and they had named it Squirrel. And I, w I was around kind of at the beginning when they named the band. And I just want to go on the record. And this is a behind the scenes uh, story that you will only get here on Matt's podcast is that we actually had a party down at that, at that, that building uh, to kind of name the band. And we had tons of people there that had come up with all these awesome names. I'm not going to go into how, what they all were, but they were all awesome. And every one of them was better than the name squirrel, which is what we ended up having, which is spelled S Q W R L. And we're on iTunes and, and stuff. If you really are bored and you want to listen to us. Um, but they, so they ended up with the band squirrel, the name squirrel. And it's basically because of that movie up when that dog, whenever he sees a squirrel, like, he looks away really quick because we were all very distracted by shiny things. So Fletcher had this band running with his CFO, Michael Deitch, uh, our lead guitarist, Tony, our bass player, Kevin, and then our lead singer, Jim. And we had another woman named, uh, woman named Amy who sang with us at that time too. And I kept trying to get into the band. And I, every time I met with Fletcher, I was like, you really should let me play with the band. You know, I'm a, I'm a decent keyboardist. I'll bring my own stuff. I'll, I'll carry people's bags. All I want to do is a chance. And he kept putting me off, <clears throat> excuse me, because I, I don't think he really thought I could play. And then uh, I got, he, he finally invited me down one Sunday morning and I played and then the rest is history. And we, we played a lot of gigs together, certainly played uh, second Saturdays or downtown Saturday night. We played at the Fox several times in club Congress and um, a lot of other parties and, and stuff like that. And it was an awesome, awesome experience. Uh, and it's a really Tucson is a great music community. It's a great medical community, and a lot of a lot of uh, medical people play music musical instruments. And so it's a, it was a natural fit for me. Fantastic. That's you know when you talk about integrated healthcare, and I'm I'm going to make uh, I'm going to make a fantastic segue here because I'm going to tie integrated awesome. healthcare to, uh, to to music. But so one of the things that I think a lot of people and you touched on it a little bit, um, you know, when they hear integrated healthcare. It can it can mean it can mean a couple different things depending on who you're talking to, right? 
Um, if you're talking to somebody from the payer side, you know, we might be talking about it from the standpoint of uh, maybe uh, could be something like a, within the confines of a patient-centered medical home, or it could be something mm-hmm. within the confines of um, just basically a facility that has a behavioral health side and a primary care side. And, and I think from a data perspective, and I think this actually does tie to to a culture discussion, but, you know, for a long time, we've we've kind of treated a lot of things that, that as if they're separate and, and undervalued them as a component of a, of a larger construct. Right. So like primary care is a great example of something that you, know, you talk to anybody in uh, anybody who's informed, I think, in the insurance industry on the payer side um, looks at the valuation of primary care um, from a reimbursement perspective. But then you look at the return on investment in primary care from a, case management standpoint and, and ultimately a cost of treatment standpoint. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, insurance companies get a fantastic bargain on primary care that unfortunately goes very underutilized because the incentives aren't always aligned that way. And then you take that and then you, you multiply it by about three. And I think that's where we wind up with behavioral health. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I guess from a business perspective, um, first off, uh, bold go of it to take the two of them together and try and get paid on it. Um, but when you look at it kind of as a, as, as, a, as something where you're innovating on the fly, you're trying to meet your patients where they're at um, across a, a spectrum of potential issues. You've got mental health issues. You've got issues of access to care um, that are that materialize, I think in primary care more than really anywhere else. You don't see, you know, uh, quite frankly, the complaints about access to care don't often rise to the level of a cardiologist, for example, mm-hmm. whereas a PCP is addressing that on the front lines. So basically, so as, as a business, you're, you're making a go of it as a business in, in two areas of the healthcare system that are kind of critically undervalued, but extremely important. Um, what lessons do you take from, you know, your experience talking to patients who you're trying to meet them where they're at behaviorally from a primary care perspective, um, what lessons from that do you take into your business and, and how you interact with your employees? Because you do kind of hire people where they're at as they are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to adapt a business around a team. How do you do that? And, and if you were talking to an employer that's saying, Hey, you know, a, I'm trying to understand what integrated healthcare is. Why is this important in our healthcare system? But B, are there lessons that I could apply to my business, even if it's not in the healthcare space, about how I interact with my employees. Is there something, can, is there something, some, some ground to run on there that you think you could, you could bring from your experience? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I think you got, you got to go back into how we um, have separated healthcare in this country over the last 30 or 40 years. You know, there was a time uh, where mental health and primary care were separated into these different silos. Um, and I think that was the start of a, a lot of our health crises problems that we're having now. So, um, for whatever reasons, and we're not going to call the insurance companies, the bad guys, it just happened. It, it happened. We're all very busy with stuff. And, and so you had your mental health care at this one place in this one silo and you had your primary care in a different place. And I it, very, very rarely would those two sides interact. When I was a primary care doctor at, at Carondelet and Carondelet is a great company. It has nothing to do with them. Uh, when I worked there, I can say I was there for probably 12 years and I talked to a psychiatrist twice in those 12 years. Uh, and that's just, 
just as much on me as it is on the psychiatrist. I, I did not ever call a psychiatrist. Both those times was when the psychiatrist called me to talk about a patient. Um, th that doesn't work. I mean, that doesn't work for patients. Uh, and that puts patients at risk of significant uh, medical and mental health problems. Like if we, if I am writing medications for a patient and I don't know what mental health medications they're on, there can be significant interactions between our medications. And the same goes for the mental health provider. Uh, and if uh, I'm seeing a patient and I don't know, I don't have context for what they're going through socially. Uh, are they getting beat up, beat up by their spouse? Do they not have a place to live? Do they not have food in their pantry? Those are all things that really impact physical health. And in a 15 minute visit, it is very difficult for me to get into when I'm trying to get on top of your, your sugars are 300 and your blood pressure is 180. Um, I, I don't have time to worry about your, where you live right now, but really if someone doesn't have a good place to live and they have food insecurity and they're in, in a marginalized group of people that doesn't have access to care, then all those things are, are why their blood pressure and their blood sugars are so high. So yeah, as a society, absolutely. we really have to get to how we're going to address those things together. But when we were, when we separated mental health care from primary care, um, we did a big disservice to the patient and we did a big disservice to medical providers because um, we live our lives in isolation, much like many of us in this coronavirus time have been doing at home. Like, we need social interaction. Uh, we're, humans are designed to, to get some satisfaction, to get some release of dopamine from interacting with other people. And when we're at home and we're interacting with people through screens or not interacting with people at all, then we are missing something. And that... Uh, we feel that as a sense of unease, as a sense of anxiety, as a sense of fear, as difficulty sleeping, as eating too much, uh, eating the wrong things, drinking the wrong things, or you know, taking the wrong things, or not eating a much, not not eating enough, not exercising enough, not taking care of ourselves. All those things that happen to people with really significant mental health problems, medical problems, happen to us. Um, who don't necessarily have those issues, but when we're in isolation. And so uh, we feel um, that putting primary care doctors and mental health doctors together gets the best outcomes for the patients. It's not just me that feels that way. SAMHSA, you know, which is one of the big mental health uh, uh, organizations in the, in the United States, feels that way too. And when you combine primary care and mental health care and substance abuse care, you get the best outcomes at the best cost uh, for everybody. So uh, from the insurance standpoint, you know, what, what all, and from the medical standpoint, we all want, we want the best outcomes for lower cost. And we also want to have engagement from our patients and engagement from our staff. And we want it to be a good experience. So from, from a cultural standpoint, how we try to design the patient experience is that people feel connected. They feel heard they feel validated they want their friends to come here they want people to say i i can't believe i just met this doctor and they actually listened to what i had to say um and they weren't just worried about checking boxes or or the other things that we all get very busy doing I can tell you that I'm, I'm pretty old school. I do not bring a computer into the room with me. Um, a lot of the younger doctors I work with do, um, and I, there's nothing wrong with that. But I find that I get distracted if I have a screen in the room with me and a patient. Um, I, I find I really don't want the patient to feel like I'm worried about anything else but what they're saying to me 
and that they, I want them to know that, that they have my full undivided attention. And so I bring in a piece of paper and that's all I bring in is an empty piece of paper. And I kind of, we kind of sit and talk about what happens next. And sometimes that's a problem. Like if I need to know what their last labs were, and I don't have them at the, at, right in my brain, then I have to step out and get them. But for the most part, it makes it work. And that seems to be why, why patients come to me. There's lots of reasons why patients come to our other providers who are all very good and they just have different styles. Uh, one thing I think culturally that we try to do is uh, be a place where all those different styles can work. You know, my style works for me. That doesn't necessarily work for someone else. And so we want to uh, make a place of work where that individual style can be used um, as long as we get our work done. At the end of the day, you got to get your work done. And we all do. We just come about it in a slightly different way. I previously was uh, was, uh, was in the military. And so spent nine years in the military. And one of the things that we talk about within the confines of a unit is, you know, on the, on the essential items, we're united. Um, and then on the items that surround that, we're, we're, you're tolerant functionally. I mean, like you, you create space to allow people to be different, uh, but you really, so it seems culturally, it's, it's kind of funny when you see touchstones of successful organizations, oftentimes it's funny how much they boil down in, in, in common, you know, they're just applied differently. But you said something, I think, that really around the patient experience that really seems like a great cultural nugget, which is kind of being intentional about making sure that people have time to feel heard and acknowledged, um, which is difficult, right? Because you've everybody's got demands on their time and, and, you know, you're all trying, everybody's trying to row as fast as they can. And so it's difficult sometimes to say, all right, this is the point where we need to put our oars down and check in and make sure we're all still going forward. Do you, how do you do that within the confines of Escalera? I mean, you've talked about kind of meeting check-ins and things like that. Is it something where it's institutionalized? Is it something where it's a bit more kind of ad hoc where it's, Hey, I'm walking around and checking in with people as I see them. And then if it is um, a blend of those, what do you look for much in the same way that I would expect you probably signs you look for in a patient when somebody's talking to you to say, all right, is this an area where I need to ask some more questions? Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic uh, question. I, you know, I think, you know, as a, as a relatively small employer of, you know, 25 to 30 employees right now, it is, it is easier to do it walking around, knowing everybody's faces, kind of getting to know everybody's mannerisms, and then being aware and hopefully astute enough to realize that if someone's being short, if someone's uh, distracted, then that, those are times to reach out and, and kind of find out what's going, what's, what's happening. I am not always the best person to do that. You know, we have other people on our staff that um, uh, I don't have that. What I mean is I don't have that relationship with everybody that I feel like I'm the appropriate person to, to, to talk to them, but we do have an open line of communication with our executive team so that the right person is able to, to get to talk to that person. So if I have a concern, I will talk to my chief clinical officer, Robin Glixman, uh, who is kind of in charge of our personnel and has a very close relationship with our staff. And so she is more likely to be that direct uh, communicator uh, with that individual person. And we all kind of try to keep an eye on each other. Uh, I, I can tell you that with uh, the COVID uh, pandemic, it has been much harder to do this. Uh, uh, yesterday, uh, between 1.30 and 7, uh, we screened about 150 COVID patients at three different sites. And so there's not a lot of time in those interactions, which are often a minute or two long, to make a patient really feel like you're hearing them. So we do our absolute best and, and you can still be open and people can still get a sense of 
what you are and what you're about, you know, from that first impression, from those first seconds you meet someone, you kind of, we've all made a hundred deductions or, or, or judgments already. And so we really try to have an overwhelmingly positive attitude, uh, not just with our patients, but with our community, with our payers, with our, our, our staff and our patients and kind of, you know, our, the brand that we kind of have is, is, I think, you know, Culinary Dropout is, is an amazing restaurant here in town. And, and I think Sam Fox and his line of restaurants are amazing. And each one of his restaurants has kind of a unique presentation on a brand culturally. For me, personally, um, I have a lot of tattoos. I wear black t-shirts all the time. And that is kind of my brand is that I want to be known as someone who doesn't look like the typical doctor that they see every day. A lot of my patients have tattoos. A lot of people feel like they've had to cover them up in doctor's offices before, and they don't feel like that in our office. You know, a lot of, we try to make sure that our patients feel welcome, like you, to use your word, to meet them where they're at. Um, and I, for a lot of patients, well, let me put it this way. Doctors have a long history of thinking pretty highly of themselves. And, uh, and I think that comes through to patients. And if you can find, a provider who who doesn't who takes themselves with a uh, sense of humor uh and also um uh, you know is likes to talk about music and video games and all the things that i like to do outside of medicine then that's how we bond with patients and our staff and so that's that's how we've been able to kind of get our culture going and hopefully maintain it i think to your point as we get bigger and as we expand and what's happened before uh we need to get to the um uh, we need to figure out how we're going to do that as a as an institution well i think um you know kind of in closing there are a couple great things that, that you said there but if i was to put a bow on it and uh, let me know if you agree but it seems like if we can um if we can be intentional about being kind kind of giving people um a space to, to feel comfortable and um, just being intentional about being connected and, and, and on the things that make us unique and make us human. It seems like from a cultural perspective, at least that's uh, those are some pretty solid guide stones to carry us, uh, to carry us forward as we adapt and, and try and get back to some semblance of, of what life was before. Would you Absolutely. say that's a fair, a fair way to summarize? I agree. And <laughs> much better than I could put it for sure. Uh, yeah, that's perfect. So, well, Christian, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, if somebody wants to find you, uh, you know, uh, the TED Talk or LinkedIn or Twitter, yep. uh, I think Twitter, your side, is it Side Hustle Doc? Side, you side Hustle MD. Some, yeah. Side yeah, Hustle MD. MD.com. And certainly, uh, you know, if people want to email me or reach out to me, my email is ChristianMoreMD at Gmail. And so it's C H R I S T I A N M O H E R M D at Gmail.com. And I'm happy to to take emails and questions and, 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 um, love, we love Tucson. We love the community, love what this podcast represents and really want to make, uh, Tucson the best place to work and the best place to live. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you again for the time. And for all this, uh, for all of you that are joining us, thank you for taking the time to listen. We'll catch you next month. Cultural work at Tucson. This is Matt. I'm signing off. Join Matt for another interesting Culture at Work podcast right here on TucsonBusinessRadioX.com.